we have to embrace uh, uh, technologies of speed, but we have to do it in a way that doesn't just a priori assume that going faster is going to be the cure-all. We are about to dive into the minds of heroes that battled through adversity and came out the other side transformed into something greater. Entrepreneurs on a mission to change the world, athletes and performers with incredible ability for higher execution, individuals making social change because they're unsatisfied with the status quo, doctors pushing the boundaries of knowledge to push the needle on human potential, people that made the decision to be the hero of their story. This is Heroic Minds. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Catherine Bowskill from the RAND Corporation, an American nonprofit global policy think tank created in 1948 to offer research and analysis to the United States Armed Forces. Catherine has her PhD in anthropology and draws on qualitative and quantitative methods to study a range of sociocultural and health-related issues. Now, on this podcast today, we talk about a very pressing cultural and societal issue, and that is the speed at which we choose to live life, but also the speed at which we are enabled to live life. Now, usually we approach this topic from a very subjective psychological point of view, looking in at ourselves and how the fast-paced world is affecting us as individuals. But in this conversation, yes, we touch on that, but more importantly, we talk about it from a group, from a society, from a world point of view, discussing groups of people within society and how it is affecting all of us as a whole. And I really enjoyed this side of the conversation. In this episode, we talk about the unforeseen consequences of a fast-paced world in healthcare, in the military, in travel, communication, even in your own backyard. We also point out the differences in countries that are deciding to push the pace and those that aren't. This is a powerful conversation that is and will continue to affect everyone in society today. In conclusion, Catherine leaves us with something extremely powerful, and that is a conversation about how we can best utilize the spare time, the free time that a fast-paced world has given us. If we can do things faster and we have time left over, how are we leveraging that spare time? How do we ensure we are leveraging that spare time to make us better, healthier, more powerful people? And she tells us exactly how she does that. So stay tuned to the end for that powerful part of this episode. Before we get going, as always, we have to give a shout out to our incredible friends over at True Local, high quality meat, individually packaged, shipped to your doorstep. You decide exactly what shows up, when it shows up, whatever interval you want, no cancellation fees, awesome customer service, and high quality meat every single time. That's truelocal.ca. If you want to give them a shot for the very first time, use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. That's truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L dot C-A. Check them out. Give them a try. They're unbelievable people, unbelievable product. And for those that follow me on social media, you will already know of the clothing line Heroic that I'm trying to grow right now organically, authentically, sharing this message of people with the will to see opportunity and challenge, people with the will to see their life as an opportunity to be a hero for other people. If you want to maybe purchase some heroic apparel, a t-shirt, 
a hat, a toque for those that are in colder climates. We've got new toques released. If you want any of those, use the discount code HEROICMINDS, all capital letters, to get 15% off your order. And also, if you're in charge of a team, whether that be business, sports, I have some people reaching out about doing team orders, heroic apparel that is team ordered, team issued, heroic logo with your logo. If you're interested in that, shoot me an email in the description of this episode and we'll take that conversation further to get your team looking good in some heroic apparel. Alrighty, now let's get to this awesome episode. It's interesting how this is such a timely discussion as you would already know for so many different people and and on this podcast we've often talked about it from a point of view of a very subjective point of view and more psychological and i think that obviously plays into this discussion but the anthropological approach in a greater a greater view i think is so powerful i I think we overlook that part because we're so focused on ourselves at times that um it's just such a cool conversation i think your ted talk was was and and can be for so many people life-changing because i think this is one of the biggest issues today so i I really thank you for for sharing that well that's a huge honor ben and and congratulations to you i I actually since you extended the invitation which i'm so glad to receive uh uh, i've been listening to your podcast and and have loved not only your interviewing style but the people that you've brought together and so i'm i'm humbled to be a part of that group thank you oh of course of course so uh, i i didn't know where to start this and and i think it was funny our email chain was it was a little bit funny there when we were a little confused on timing and and your um humor there and saying that maybe it's due to this fast-paced lifestyle and (laughs) (laughs) i thought we would kick things off instead of getting into your background exactly which will come up in this conversation i thought i would start with a quote that i looked up in a news article from the independent in june 19th uh 2018 and the beginning of the article says Okay, while urban environments are sometimes associated with greater levels of stress and anxiety, keeping yourself occupied on a daily basis has also been linked to greater levels of life satisfaction. Among, and then it says, and this article is, is called, actually titled, Living in a Fast-Paced City is Key to Happiness, Research Claims. So the next quote says, Among individuals in a society, busyness or the feeling of busyness seems to be an important factor in well-being. So I wanted to start with that and see where we can take this conversation. So what is what comes to mind when you see stuff like that published in pretty big mediums for, yeah. for where people find their news? A couple of things. So one is, as you rightly note, I mean, there's a lot of, of isolation that uh, one could sort of a priori see happening within kind of smaller, more rural settings uh, or, you know, difficulty accessing resources, services, things like that. Uh, all of those things uh, which we could think of as readily available within urban contexts. Um, at the same time, you know, people always talk about New York City of this this beautiful paradox of being surrounded by millions of people and yet, you know, also feeling lonely or or enjoying the solitude of it. So, um, you know, that's that's one factor as well. I think what it really points to, though, is that the way that you seek meaning um, in your own life and in your own action, in your own context is is your own, right? So I've also read a great article years and years ago uh, from the New York Times called The Busy Trap, right? So this whole, this all, this funny paradox of um, constantly being on the go, but what have you really accomplished? Where have you really found meaning? Um, where have you really sort of had that time to um, to connect, to connect with yourself, connect with your, your work, uh, all the things that you find valuable, 
with your community. Um, so I, I, I would suspect, and I haven't seen the research, but I would suspect that it's a little bit deeper than, um, than you know, that's sort of the, the key to happiness is being busy. I think the key to happiness more than anything, and I hesitate to make this a, a like a, any sort of a self-help talk, but I think it's just more um, health comes through healthy social connections. Um, and that's a very human thing. And that's a very universal human aspect is that we're made to be cooperative. We're made to be, um, we're made to be together. We're made to be enjoying time together, making meaning together. So I, that would be sort of my, my take on it, um, initially. Yeah. It, it almost seems as if it's, we're confused and, and maybe our, our vision is kind of blurred. I think we, maybe we perceive that we're happy. We think we're happy because we're busy and we're, we think we're getting things done. But then if we take a step back and think, Oh my gosh, it took me that long to do this or my heart rates <laughs> this. And I really look back at myself, which so often we, we decide not to do. I think we might see a different story than, than what maybe our, our, front mind is is actually telling ourselves. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it can be really easy to kind of stay busy and have time fly uh, and not necessarily um, find appropriate ways to slow down and evaluate and assess whether or not what's happening and, and all the things that are keeping you busy are actually bringing fulfillment. And, and I'll say with full disclosure, outside of my, my research life of, of studying this from an outsider looking in, this is absolutely something that I struggle with all the time. Um, you know, just trying to get a research career up and running, moving to a new city, traveling constantly, having lived in multiple countries. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite college professors told me, uh, early on, she said, you're, you're living faster than you can cognitively process. She was absolutely right. Um, so I certainly have to have to keep this in check all, all the time um, and, and sort of fight the hypocrisy of, of, uh, of falling into that busy trap. Um, but I do think that in many ways, it's sort of become culturally sanctioned to stay busy and quote unquote distracted um, without sort of stopping and taking stock of where we are and, and making sure that for all the ways that we are staying busy, it's in a way that's, that's meaningful and fulfilling to us. Totally. And I, and I really like how you, in your TED Talk, pulled out the value of actually slowing down and, and utilizing the extra time we now have because of how fast things are. And before we, we get to that part, I think we talk through the problems and everything that exists before we get to the positive side of this whole thing and, and how we can improve ourselves. And I'll start with a, another quote from the New York Post. And it says, the massive incoming information has actually eroded our attention and our creativity. <laughs> Increasing internal chaos and fragmenting our attention. And you might be familiar with that, uh, that quote, but I, in your research, where is it you see the biggest detriments? I think our attention, inc- and to me even further that I think is more upsetting is our creativity as people is, is taking a hit. And, and what other things do you see or what are the biggest issues right now in this whole fast-paced addiction that we, we find ourselves yeah, that, that's a great question. So actually, Einstein said, uh, creativity is the residue of time wasted. <laughs> and I, I think that, that, that that's a, it's a good um, corollary to, to the, the, the New York Post quote. So, but it just goes to show how much that, that resonates or that, that sentiment resonates. So, you know, I think about this a lot. I, I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, give a roundabout answer to your question. But um, an AI that can produce classical music you know, wow, what a cool scientific feat. I think that that's really incredible. And yet, 
I think that people also experience so much joy throughout the creative process. They learn a lot about themselves. They they uh, establish meaning to a particular place through the art of creation. And if we sort of hand that over to a machine, what do we lose uh, in that? And also, what have we gained? And I think that we can kind of understand what we've lost by not necessarily being able to answer what we've gained, aside from, like I said, being able to um, to achieve a, a really incredible scientific feat. Um, but there, there, there is such majesty and wonderment, I think, in, in that art of, of creation. What people have found is, I think, um, as the really rapid pace of, of communication and information comes in, I'll talk about this both from, from a, a public standpoint and then maybe from, um, or a societal standpoint, and then maybe one from, from policymakers. So from a public standpoint, you know, think about it. If you're scrolling through a Twitter feed and you see, let's take the the Australian wildfires, for example. I mean, that's a really horrific uh, event that's occurring right now. And it, it's one that really should make us all kind of come to a screeching halt um, and figure out very quickly how we should take action, um, feel empathy for what's going on. Um, but you could easily scroll 0.2 seconds later and see uh, a kitten riding on a Roomba and, and laugh at it. So <laughs> I'm not sure that our brains are, are necessarily built for, I mean, no, it's funny, but um, I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that that kind of jarring um, juxtaposition of two vastly different things uh, in such a, uh, a condensed period of time is necessarily the best for really grasping um, the complexity of what's happening in our world. Um, but I also, you know, I think that it can really hinder uh, sort of collective problem solving. I think as well, when we have this sort of flood of information coming at us constantly, um, this is, again, just my sense. I haven't, I haven't studied this in a rigorous, um, in a rigorous research project, let's say, but this would be my hypothesis is, the more, um, the more information that kind of keeps coming at us, the more information that we can't necessarily make sense of, I think maybe leading people to sort of retreat into their own safe havens and maybe feel less likely to, to reach out and try and understand somebody who might be coming from a different perspective, a, a different way of life. Um, and this might be contributing to to some of the polarization that we're seeing uh, on a societal level. I mean, we're certainly feeling it in the states. Um, I, I would suspect that that you're feeling it in Canada as well. Uh, and I know that that Europeans are at the whole world, really. So um, I, I can think about how sort of uh, relying on those cognitive heuristics um, that lead us to potentially short-sighted explanations for what we see going on when really there's there's a much deeper, much more complex picture um, could be leading us astray in the long run. I think for, for policymakers, what we're seeing, and, and we did have policymakers who, who took part in this, uh, this, this Security 2040 project that I'm happy to tell you about, or the, the, the speed work that we did, um, they had this, this really great analogy of, of saying that Back in the day, there was a slower pace of, of information coming in. You sort of got your three newspapers on your on your front doorstep in the morning, and everybody collectively watched uh, the same news channel uh, or, or news show in the evening, and and everybody was sort of on, on an equal footing. Um, so that obviously has gone into a, a tons of orthogonal directions from there. Um, 
but it used to be that if you didn't understand a particular technology or a particular um, uh, phenomenon going on in the world, it was a matter of trying to figure out who you needed to get in the room to be able to answer that question and, and, and be able to make smarter policies. Um, those days have really gone out the window. The minute you even identify what the problem is, if you're lucky enough to have identified what the right problem is, uh, it could already be too late. So, you know, a tweet can really shake up the entire world in a matter of minutes. Um, and, and that's just a, a pace that for democracies, I think, especially can be really tough to, to keep in step with. So, um, one civil servant, high-level civil servant in the United States talked about it as needing to have a circuit breaker. Um, so somebody who can sort of stop and 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 not necessarily hit pause, but um, take one big step back and and make sure that the problem that's even being evaluated uh, is is the correct problem at hand. Um, and and that you know things have not already sort of gone into hyperdrive um, where, you know, there, there's a whole different landscape that you need to be looking at. So, I, I mean, I really like that idea of having a circuit breaker of of um, of having someone or or something that can help sort of keep things in check. Uh, so I'll I'll stop there. I know that was that was a lot, but th those are those those two sort of levels that I think about um, in terms of how to cope with that flood of information. It almost makes me think on the on the policy side as well, which I which I would obviously understand less than the society's side is that we're almost trying to fix, we're trying to fix something, but we're not fixing the right problem. There's a leak in the uh, plumbing yeah. example, and we're, we're not even near the actual root problem of this, this plumbing issue. And it's just going to keep occurring. I, I, I mean, <laughs> the fast, you, I, I think your example was so great about Twitter scrolling through Twitter. So what is that doing to us as an individual, but also as a group bouncing around from these different ideas and thoughts. And so we're overstimulated. And then we, to try and fix that, we actually just work on our, our sleeping habits. And it's like, wait a second, yeah. fixing our sleep, that's not going to fix it, right? The issue is in something so much deeper that if we try to just improve our sleeping, it's not going to fix how, how we're feeling. And um, I think bringing that, that awareness is to exactly why I wanted to have this conversation. It's I think I think a lot of us are are trying to fix these issues, um, not really dealing with the the actual root problem. So I, I really appreciate that. And on on that policy side, you brought up some other very very interesting pieces of, of life in in the policy side of things, and even in in medicine and transportation, where this is actually even more real, and and how it's come, even comes down to safety. One one very prime example is texting and driving because we feel that need mm. to get the message back faster and, and like the picture sooner. And um, the also I, I read some research you've done on the medical system with uh, diagnosis for diabetes. I thought that's I, I would oh. have no idea. I, I would never think that because I'm so <laughs> worried about myself kind of thing that when would I ever look into that idea of, of the fast paced world and how it's affecting people in medicine. And I wondered if you could share some of those, those issues that exist. I would love to thank you. Thank Well, first of all, thank you for reading that paper. I appreciate that. Um, it's, <laughs> it always, it always feels like a great work day when, when somebody reads your, your paper. So, so that's actually a great example of, um, where a, a particular technology, a speedy technology, can um, can help in sort of one side of the problem, but unless an entire system adjusts, we won't actually see the end result um, that that we're trying to reach. So, in that particular work, this is this is really interesting. The leading cause of blindness among working age adults 
is through uh, diabetic retinopathy. So this is basically it's it's a it's a terrible um, uh, consequence of of having diabetes where um, uh, essentially the the capillaries in your eyes um, burst and it can lead to to permanent blindness. Um, so it, it, it's it's a major obviously a major detriment to quality of life. Um, however, it is fairly easy to diagnose and fairly easy to treat. Um, it's just in many ways a, a matter of access. So uh, to sort of shorten the gap between um, or shorten the, the, the limitations in terms of access um, for at least getting screened for this condition of diabetic retinopathy, um, we can use telehealth, uh, telemedicine, um, and we can bring, um, we can bring the, the diagnostic process into primary care clinics, which are far easier to reach than, say, a specialist or an ophthalmologist's office. Um, so what researchers had found and, and what our group had found with that work was um, that uh, folks were being screened um, and diagnosed but weren't necessarily able to get in to treatment. Um, so in the end, you know, many people were still unfortunately going blind uh, or were only receiving par- partial treatment. Um, and that's because the system hadn't necessarily adjusted to um, to adapt to the 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 rising flow of people who are being diagnosed with this condition. Obviously, diabetes r- remains a, a, a public health, a major public health issue um, uh, across the United States, uh, many parts of the world. Um, so unless the, the system, the healthcare system was willing to, um, to willing, willing to adjust to, uh, to keep pace with, with the increasing rise of, of patients who had this condition, um, it wasn't going to solve anything in the long run. So you could speed up sort of that, that one part of the puzzle, um, but without sort of accounting for the rest of it, uh, the, the point is sort of moot. Um, so, uh, or not necessarily moot, of course, but um, but if we if we really have to think bigger than um, just using one sort of technology of speed, and I think we can think about that uh, across the board, um, you know, and it, maybe we want to connect through through social media, right? But is that sort of if if we're if we're craving connection, is that really enough to to get us there? What does it really take? Um, so so I would just say that it's. Uh, technologies of speed are, are incredible, and I never, ever want to suggest that we should um, come to a screeching halt or, or, or not necessarily use these technologies. But think about all of the ways that going faster is going to help solve the problem. And if going faster is only one component of solving that problem, what else needs to be in place in order uh, to to improve a particular situation or optimize a particular uh, uh, issue. Totally. I think the way I, I'm very visual, and you'll probably, I've already gone with some visual ideas, but the other one is, uh, from what you're saying, is you have this uh, this chain of a process, a ladder that is the medical system, and you only speed up three of those links uh, and then expect it all to work, yeah. and it's all going to it's gonna catch up to one another. And again, taking that step back, I guess, is the key to, okay, how can we efficiently improve this process without super fast in one spot and then expecting everything else to just keep up with the system. It doesn't really work that way. Most definitely. See, that's, I think that's a part of where, I mean, I'm 26. I'm starting now to understand probably should have been earlier in my life, but starting to understand politics and policy a little more now. And I think that's with where things are going in life and being someone that will be voting and have influence on certain changes being made uh, government wise or municipal 
municipal governing bodies to, to keep that in mind is I think important as we, as time continues to obviously speed up or, or our, our lifestyle continues to speed up. Now in, in this whole conversation, do you see, or in your research, I guess, do you see a point, a breaking point? That's a great question. Uh, uh, and and I guess today I'm feeling particularly optimistic. So I'm not going to say that there's necessarily going to be a breaking point, um, but I, I do think that we will have to cope with some major adjustments that are going to be happening in this world. And so um, one one major well, <laughs> let me start with an anecdote. So one of my <laughs> um, I'm great at a dinner party, Ben. So <laughs> really, yeah, well, I'm a real party favorite. But um, so I'll I'll often uh, if there's a lull in conversation, I'll ask people, "Would you rather give up your your smartphone or give up the right to vote?" And the interesting data point is how long it actually takes people to answer that question. Although I will say that um, that more people who are kind of more towards your your age range your generation go well you know what does it matter anyways I'll, I'll give them my right to vote uh, and that's really striking it's really starting when you think about all that went into establishing the right to vote um, just to be so so flippant in terms of not uh, or to forego sort of a central tenet of civil engagement. Uh, for a smartphone, for for a piece of technology um, that you know, I think more and more people see as a as, as an appendage, um, is really, really, really striking. Um, so I, I I start with that. Um, I, I think that that's a that's a little bit of a slippery slope, or a lot of bit of a slippery slope, um, and uh, and and one that we should all be really seriously considering. So. In part, that makes me think that our civic systems and our systems of governance um, need to be more in check with the fact that people probably want to feel more connected um, and they don't want to feel so blindsided by, again, that sort of flood of, of information and misinformation and disinformation, sort of quote unquote fake news um, that's mm -hmm. happening all around us. Um, the, these decisions that are made and then unmade and remade uh, all the time, it's very fast. And I, and again, I think that when it's so fast, it can lead people to retreat or feel like they're just throwing their hands up. Um, but I am worried about that kind of world. The other thing that we need to con consider, uh, which is sort of in, uh, uh, related to that, um, and this is a theory that the, the RAND Corporation, um, where, where I work as, as an anthropologist, uh, has been grappling with since the early 90s. And that's the rise of a social structure in the form of a networked society. So we can think about sort of um, market systems and hierarchical systems where there were sort of these predictable flows of people and products and information. You sort of knew what to expect um, and change happened. The rate of change um, wasn't as, as, as fast as it, as it was today, um, you know, across technology, across uh, uh, informatics, um, uh, just the sheer movement of people. I mean, all of it was even 20, 30 years ago, quite different. Um, how that, those sort of predictable flows through, through market systems have given way to a networked system where we're all sort of, um, we've dissolved into this constant flow of, of people and products and good and, and, and currencies and information um, that is giving rise to uh, non-state actors 
um, and to to other major global players that weren't sort of our traditional global players, um, like major corporations, um, that have immense power in this world. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's not right. We can think about how, say, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is is totally changing the the landscape of global health in this world. It's amazing, um, and that that's that's not necessarily a state, right? That's not a, a a multilateral organization like the World Health Organization, but it's worth really considering how we'll we'll start to see the rise of power um, from uh, sort of non-traditional actors, uh, and and that's all sort of wrapped up within within this uh, this age of acceleration that we're experiencing. Yeah, that was where I was going to go next. Is there is there a further imbalance to those that can access this speed or those that are maybe controlling how fast things are ramping up? Is there a benefit to them, and does that create a further distance between those at the top and those at the bottom? Yeah, and I. I, I Sure. Um, although I think on the one end, uh, there's a lot of of technologies of speed that um, that can be great equalizers in the world. Oh, okay. um, so you know, again, I don't want to I, I don't want to sort of just um, sound alarm bells without saying that there is something about say YouTube University that is really powerful. Um, and then there's also something about social media leading to the Arab Spring that was also really powerful, right? Yeah. So um, yeah. so. It's it's less. I don't necessarily want to speak directly to, um, to sort of who wins and who loses and all that. But um, just to to plant that seed that we need to be thinking really critically about how um, people can sort of reclaim um, uh, sort of people on on a massive scale can. Um, can start to really shape and dictate what's happening in their lives and disrupt um, sort of existing systems of of power and governance that have been um, that have been in place. So I think that's just again sort of from a from a public policy standpoint um, and from a global perspective something that we that we really need to consider. Um, but I think let's let, let's stick a little bit closer to home. Um, even if a particular system of education uh, can start to incorporate faster technologies um, and, and others can't. I absolutely think that that, that creates a rift in society um, that can create, that can lead to, of course, resentment um, and, and, and subsequent polarization. Um, I, 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 we use this example in the research. We came up with four vignettes of, of people living with faster technologies in the year 2040. And I love talking about them. They're, they're really fun. Um, but one in one scenario, we uh, we pretend that there's that there's the hyperloop, so um, so the the massively high speed train um, that has uh, you know, prototypes have been developed for you know well over a hundred years at this point. Um, but it's it, we we pretend that in the year 2040, it's totally come to fruition, and there's these chains of mega cities along uh, along the eastern and, and and western coasts of of the United States. Uh, so, you know, imagine you can sort of float seamlessly between San Francisco and Los Angeles or or between Washington, D.C. all the way up to Boston. Um, so what happens to what happens to the rest of the country if, if you know, sort of the economic centers, um, which are already on, on the coast, uh, you know, are, are even more solidified in that way? So not only what happens in the commercial space, that financial space, but also what happens to a sense of community? Um, you know, where do I where do I sort of dive into civic engagement if I easily float in between a whole bunch of cities? Uh, you know, I think it's it, it's worth asking that question of, of 
um, what are the trade-offs as we decide to go faster? Because there will always be trade-offs. Um, and it's, it's just really thinking carefully about what those are and being forward thinking about what they could be. I never, that's so true. If you're live, if you're working in Boston, but this train can get you to Washington and, but then you travel half the time to some other, maybe to Canada, some, some area in Canada, where do you find your identity? Who do you align with? And where's the cultural side of things? I never thought of that. That's powerful stuff. Well, it's, you know, again, I mean, I, I, I think it'd be phenomenal if I could get to San Francisco and I think their, their predictions right now are 28 minutes. Um, but at the same time, and again, I want to say that would be a really massive um, a scientific and civil engineering feat uh, in order to bore an entire hole in the ground and get us, you know, <laughs> get us between L.A. and San Francisco. How phenomenally cool. And yet, um, again, what what major problem are we solving? Because uh, in the long run, I could also hop on an airplane. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour, get up to San Francisco um, so it's not as though I'm, I'm totally hindered from doing that already in some way. So it would only be kind of an incremental benefit, um, also in some way. Uh, and then we have to think about the security dimensions. If we're, if we're moving people around so quickly, how are we going to account for the potential for the spread of an infectious disease? Um, let's say, how are we going to safeguard, uh, all these new modes of technology? So there's, there's so much more than, that needs to go into into strategic planning and systems planning um, when we think about incorporating uh, new technologies and particularly faster technologies. Um, it, we, we just have to we have to embrace uh, uh, technologies of speed, but we have to do it in a way that doesn't just a priori assume that going faster is going to be the cure all. I have to ask, and I, I wonder if your research has shown this in this entire conversation from policymaking to transportation. Are we making decisions faster and maybe not as accurately or as well thought out as we used to because we're forced to make decisions mm -hmm. faster? On a, and that could be on an individual level, but even a governmental policymaking level as well. Are we thinking, oh my gosh, we have all these people that are upset. We need to fix this. Let's, do, let's think of something quick. Is that happening? That's that's really interesting. Um, so I, I do think that we're we are forced to to make a whole bunch of decisions throughout our day, um, and we're we're forced to make them faster. So on on an individual level, um, that that's absolutely the case, and we don't necessarily have the culturally sanctioned built-in breaks that we used to have. Um, so you know, people used to go home for lunch. <laughs> Uh, I was actually I did a, a, a radio interview just yesterday uh, with a Spanish radio station. We were talking about how, you know, even 10 years ago, people still took a siesta. Uh, nobody's really doing that anymore um, within a, a really highly globalized system. Again, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of benefits that come with that too. So uh, yes, of, of course, I, I think um, there's a, an element of decision-making fatigue that can happen. There are also, of course, you know, we can we can draw upon uh, in AI to help us um, to help us make a faster decision, uh, which of course can be a really incredible um, a, a really incredible value that can go into a space. But what we've also found in our work, and, and this is something that uh, it continues to be a growing body of research uh, among myself and my colleagues at, at, at the RAND Corporation, um, is to think about not only bias that can appear within, um, within a particular algorithm, 
especially if we're relying on uh, on data that were coming from a biased source or historical data, which often was biased. Um, and and I'll, I'm happy to, to get a little bit more in, into that. Um, but also, we notice that there are different cultural values that people place in, in how much trust they place in an AI. So one of the examples that we love to give, uh, and this is a, a very classic RAND example, is um, if, let's say, Russia were to launch a hypersonic missile, uh, the estimates are that it would that it would reach the states within within six minutes. Six minutes. So if an AI detects that that a missile had been launched, and you've got policymakers, you, you've got your your leaders in the situation room who have six minutes to decide whether or not they're going to retaliate. Wow! <laughs> I mean, it's wow. it, it's it's pretty incredible. So, do you trust the the AI at that point, um, or what other system do you trust, or do you give the AI a seat at the table? Um, you know, how would how would Russia employ uh, the use of an AI? How is China uh, uh, deploying the use of AI, um, particularly within a weaponized? space. It's really interesting. Um, so I think that it's it's really thinking about like, getting people to wrap their heads around that so that we can do that kind of forward planning as uh, tools like uh, like AI and, and machine learning are are deployed within within novel spaces. And on the bias side of things, yeah, I'd love to dive down that rabbit hole. Is, is there a bias that exists within these conversations for certain parties or um, th- that's a good question. I think it's. I-, I think the bias actually comes a bit more in terms of um, of how data are constructed. So you know, we, we love to think of data as these uh, you know, very ob- objective, um, uh, a- a sort of objective sources of information. Um, but I-, I love to use the example of of uh, sort of supercomputing within the healthcare space. Um, there, there's so many rich opportunities in order to use uh, sort of big data to answer questions about about our health and our well-being, and sort of what works within healthcare and what doesn't. Um, but all of that sort of hinges upon who is willing and able and comfortable in terms of sharing their health data. So getting to the privacy standpoint, and that's a very different question. But if you if you realize that only a subset of your your total population is willing to share their data, then you've already got biased data, right? Um, so I, I think that again, it's one of those examples where yeah, big data, speed, all of these things are, are incredible. But if we if we don't sort of think about all of the the social um, social and cultural factors that go into uh, go into the, the the construction of data, and then how data gets sort of fed into an algorithm. Um, we can we we run the risk of potentially leading leading ourselves astray. Right, right. It, it, it's such a this is such a powerful conversation. I think it's it's often this conversation is too much from the subjective point of view, and I think everyone needs to look at it from this inner workings and this chain of, of the effects it can have. So I, uh, I'm blown away here by, by this conversation. I, I really, I really appreciate it. This is so cool. Um, now, is there an area you've seen and, and you've listed a couple of examples that you said there's always going to be, you know, we speed something up, there'll always be a detriment or a benefit to, to that situation. And I wondered if, if you have seen, and maybe in, in your personal life where there's a situation where we've sped something up and it has worked perfectly, we've sped things up and there hasn't been, 
maybe the or maybe the detriment is so minimal we were not aware. Is there anything that you've seen like that or some or some glaring examples of that? On a more positive note, I guess we could say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there are tons and you know, I think sometimes when I when I uh talk about this research, people sort of a priori assume, oh, she must be a Luddite or, you know, yeah, very simple. Why don't we just all, you know, move to the beach and, you know, <laughs> just chill out and be beach. I was going to say, no, I was going to say, so what side are you on with this whole thing? Because uh, obviously as a, no, I'm not an yeah, and I got that as a, I figured that as a, the incredible researcher you are, you can see it from both sides, but I was going to uh, ask that question as well. So, but anyways, anyways. <laughs> No, I'm and I'm not a luddite, um, and I, I I struggle with all the personal aspects that I think um, resonate with people in terms of you know kind of going going too fast and and wondering what's all of that for for sure. Um, but to get back to your question, there's such rich potential to to leverage technologies of speed for uh, for improving the human condition. Mm-hmm. So you know I. Uh, if I'm traveling, my neighbor who uh, who's in her 70s, if she can't get out for whatever reason for uh, for the day, um, she's got really fast delivery systems for her groceries or for her pharmaceuticals or any anything else that she would need. Um, that's incredible, right? Um, that's that's an incredible technology. That's an incredible service and and and, and system within the world. Um, I I in silly ways. I mean, you can you can use so video. Video technology and, um, and video conferencing, FaceTime, all these things to connect with my family, right? So um, we, we live all across the states, and, and I have friends all around the world, uh, just by nature of, of being an anthropologist and living all around the world. Um, and and so that that ability to connect is such a rich gift, um, and one where I think my my grandparents would have been absolutely astonished at it. Um, so I mean that that's a true wonder and something to be um, to be absolutely appreciated. We can think about gene gene editing technologies again as something that would be totally life saving, um, and and uh, and one that could totally augment uh, our agricultural systems. Let's say um, we could think about uh, uh, again delivery systems during um, times of, of of a particular catastrophe or disaster, uh, either of um, sort of life-saving medicines uh, just at the right time um, or in terms of getting people out of, of, a, of, of a particularly um, uh, catastrophic or, or disaster zone. Um, so I, I think it's all of that. And it's also thinking about the double-edged sworded nature of these things as well. Um, so I, again, it's, it, it's not as if everything has to have a particular detriment to it. It, it just, it could have uh, a particular trade-off. And the faster we get, the harder it can be to, to, you know, really think carefully about what those trade-offs are. But no, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a complete optimist when it comes to that, that space. Um, it's just, how do we think about using these technologies in the smartest way possible and safeguarding uh, these technologies against um, a- any sort of potential nefarious use? Right. It brings me back to the idea of gene editing in, in that conversation on its own, where we'll compare them gene editing versus a fast paced lifestyle is uh, where do we use this that it benefits humanity the most? And where can we use it where we don't know for sure yet, but there's likely going to be a trade off we might not want down the road. And, and I've been actually my extensive research on gene editing is through Netflix. So I don't know if that's a good thing, but the, okay. <laughs> the one it really makes you think though, from a, anthropologic or you know philosophical i'd say more side is is what 
issues do we want to, do we actually think we should fix if we have the ability to, and what does that do long-term and similar with the fast paced life is what do we want to speed up and what do we maybe not want to speed up because the detriment might be, be more than we want to take on down the road. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is it's already really being uh, unleashed on the world, if you will. So, Hei Zhang Kao is a Chinese scientist who who claims to have have produced sort of uh, a gene edited um, uh, uh, babies, uh, twins, um, by using CRISPR. So, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Um, That's so the first time I've heard that, that acronym <laughs> explained. So, thank you for that. Rolls right off the <laughs> yes. tongue, Ben. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, so, I mean, the scientific community was really incensed, right? Because he totally subverted um, traditional modes of of the the scientific process um, and and the ethics that uh, that had sort of been understood. So, you know, to kind of bounce back to what I was talking about before, where you know we see these actors who are able to have access to incredibly powerful technologies um, and, and and use them in ways that you know do sort of subvert the these traditional modes of 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 how we used to do things. Um, so, I mean, that in and of itself, I think, is a really powerful example. But in this example of of 2040, and and I don't know if this could you know actually be the case by 2040, but we used it as a thought exercise to get people thinking. Thinking about it, so um, it was a scenario that we called unnatural selection, and uh, and, and gene editing technologies uh, were used to sort of combat the the ills of a sedentary lifestyle um, by which uh, you know f- obesity was massively on the rise. So uh, there was a bipartisan decision to allow for the use of of CRISPR um, to test bringing bodies and body fat to an absolute minimum. Cool. Um, but then we found out that, you know, so imagine that, imagine what that would look like, right? Everybody's body fat is, is optimized, if you will. Um, you know, what would a sporting event look like? What would our bodies look like? You know, <laughs> it's kind of amazing to think about. I mean, you can think about athletes just like blowing past every record one after one. Um, but a mutation has led to the trait being passed on, uh, through children. So it's calling into question whether or not a new human species has been created. Wow. So, do we want that? Are we still are we still Homo sapiens <laughs> at that point? Right? I mean, how how far can we go? Um, and it, it's an interesting question because, on the one hand, wow, yeah, that sounds great, but then all of a sudden, when you realize, like, huh, I'm not really sure we want that. You know, is there anything else we could do? It just it, it makes some people feel uneasy. So, I think diving into what makes us feel uneasy about it is a really healthy exercise to. To, to keep us from getting blindsided by these technologies. Totally. I think the other important piece to this whole puzzle is whether it's looking at countries, groups within society or individuals is speed's very subjective. And I thought we could dive into that idea because yeah. you brought that up in your TED Talk too. And I thought that's very interesting because if you look at certain parts of the world where maybe it's not quite as fast as here in North America at this given time, I would love to look at the two side by side in regards to mental well-being and healthcare and length of life, et cetera, with it strictly looking at those two differences, the, the speed of the life. And um, what's the biggest thing you've noticed within those comparisons, I guess, within uh, countries, we'll <laughs> say, that are that are still kind of not horse and buggy, but a little slower than we are? <laughs> um 
That's a great question, too. And I, I, I can speak empirically to differences across the United States. I wish that I had um, a grand scale data on this globally. Uh, but I will say I lived in Austria for many years. And, uh, and, and Gustav Mahler, the, the composer, was rumored to have once said that if the world were coming to an end, he would go to Vienna because it would happen 50 years later. <laughs> So, so life is a lot slower, right? I mean, I think Vienna is actually this really interesting context where they have really high-speed technologies all around the city. The city is hyper-connected. I mean, the Wi-Fi is incredible. I think it's it's a remarkable public transit system. People are all up in arms if they have to wait three minutes for the next uh, the next subway train. I mean, it's it's amazing, and yet it's also a place where. You know, people sort of stick around and, and, and stay over a cup of coffee for five hours just talking. I mean, it can really, <laughs> there's sort of these, again, these, these culturally acceptable ways of, of, of slowing down, of, of um, imparting ritual. Um, stores are still closed on a Sunday, right? Because that's supposed to be a day where you, you slow down, you let your body slow down, you connect with your family, you go for a long walk. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the tradition. Um, so I, I think that there are just places that have stayed true to the rituals that have, um, that have kept us, uh, kept us from staying at a really high pace for a long time. Um, and, and we've had this sort of way throughout history and for millennia, you know, we can think about Lent or, or, um, or Advent or, or Ramadan or all these ways that, you know, even through fasting that, that we actually physically slow down our bodies. Um, and we do that through ritual and, we, and, and all of that really forces us to, to be introspective, but then also to connect with, with each other. So, um, so I, I would say that there's, there are these different, rituals of of slowness that we see all around the world and and different levels of adherence to them. But let me switch back to to the research. And so what we did was we we took these these four sort of fun um, imaginative vignettes of people living with faster technologies in 2040. And I, I shared two with you, the the Hyperloop and and CRISPR. Um, and we had one on on cognitive implants and one on um, sort of a ramped up sharing economy. And we went from New York City, where the the cultural model of speed, if you will, is the New York minute. So you know, life life happens pretty instantaneously, um, and that's part of what makes New York such an exciting place. So we went from the New York minute uh, down to uh, New Orleans, um, which is sort of delightfully called the Big Easy, <laughs> where you know, uh, a, a huge emphasis on on culture and ritual and slowing down and community and all that. Uh, and then we went over to Silicon Valley, so tech mecca, where you know you really can't go fast enough. Um, and and speed is the bottom line there for sure. I mean, not only in a in a competitive business sense, but um, but also just in in straight up technological development. Um, and what we found was that we had sort of various reaction types as we spoke with leaders in the community, um, civil servants, uh, entrepreneurs, creatives, you name it. We had these really interesting brainstorming um, sessions with with these heterogeneous groups of people. So some folks are really skeptical, thinking that, you know, speed is under my control. Um, speed should never sort of subvert that sense of community or equity within my community. Um, that, you know, you could sort of risk going off the rails if if you if if a particular technology of speed were to um, were to create a societal rift, and I think one prime example of that was the New Yorkers, as we thought about the the um, implementation of the Hyperloop, said, "Well, can we design it so that uh, so that we could 
get it for a dollar a day. I mean, and that was sort of an arbitrary statement, but a dollar a day, meaning, you know, one where everybody could use it, where it wouldn't just sort of be this elite thing that would allow people to, to float across cities seamlessly, but, you know, one where we could bring everybody together along with it. Um, and so the, it's sort of the sense that cost of speed should be balanced with, with, a uh, with, with, uh, lifestyle values uh, or, or the values of a particular place. Um, then we saw some people who thought uh, they were totally cautious about um, about these technologies of speed or, or just straight up in disbelief, uh, particularly when it came to uh, the um, – uh, the, the CRISPR example, he thought, oh, there's no way that's real. There's no way anything like that could ever happen, right? Um, so there was this this absolute hesitation uh, that that speed could erode uh, a sense of community. Um, and then it was really interesting. We were, you know, already maybe two hours into the brainstorming session in Silicon Valley, and 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 there was this phenomenal uh, 18-year-old scientist, uh, just really incredible, um, incredible young entrepreneur. He said, I don't really get what the big deal is with all of this. I mean, I, 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 I have a 3D printed sweater that I have on right now. <laughs> you know, I had never been in the presence of anybody who had, who had worn 3D printed clothes. I mean, it was just, it was so commonplace for him. And he said, you know, yeah, I, I own this. I own a few other things, but I, I see no need to, to um, have one sort of place that I call home. I'm, I'm really happy just to go wherever I land and, and, uh, and use um, ride sharing and and you know event uh, platforms like Airbnb to find a place to stay. You know I, I don't want to be bound to a particular place. I mean, so it really was this um, uh, speed at all costs. I mean, uh, but he didn't. He also didn't see those costs, right? It's a it's a very different value that we place on speed. So I think you know even to think about that within the United States that there are these really um, diverse perspectives. Uh, on on um, how fast we we could go or should go uh, is is really interesting. It's worth considering um, because if we don't sort of establish a smart dialogue um, that recognizes different cultural values when it comes to speed and acceleration, again, we could run the risk of of widening that that rift that's already sort of been brewing within our society. I wonder if it's it like it makes me think back to an evolutionary approach to this whole thing is, is where would the proof be or a, another time in, in evolution, whether that be, you know, a couple hundred years ago or whether that be us as humans evolving where I think what you, where you said out slowing things down and the benefits to a siesta and taking Sundays off that those are the things that I see as we continue to have this conversation that will catch up to us at some point where we just, our body cannot adapt fast enough as we already know we're ahead of where our, our minds and bodies are evolving to. So, um, that's, it's, yeah, I think it's understanding those costs and the costs are, when you, when you say cost, I think it's important for people to realize that cost is not money. It's not monetary necessarily. It's a cost to our, our happiness and our composure and our thinking and our really at the end of the day, our entire life and our lifestyle that the cost cost comes to and in, in, in an individual like that entrepreneur, does it get to a point where there's a day where they're sitting there and things do, they hit that threshold like this. I've got to slow down here. This is too much. I wonder because there science would, would suggest that we, our mind can't just keep speeding up and speeding up and look at the, the state of the world from a mental wellness point of view, I think is, is proof in the pudding right there. 
Well, I, I'm 100% with you there, and I'm, I'm hearing um, I, I'm hearing all the folks who are part of the Silicon Valley session kind of groan, right? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> um, so it's always it's always your mental health and well being, or the mental health and well being of a population vis a vis those cultural values. So um, I think that that's sort of I, I would temper, you know, kind of thinking about that from that individual perspective. However, I absolutely think it's worth interrogating why we have this massive rise in depression and anxiety and of sort of novel emerging culture bound syndromes as we, we call them within anthropology of uh, and transcultural psychiatry of, of something like burnout, right? Why are we burned out? What is it about it? I mean, I, I was watching people go in droves on, uh, on sick leave for burnout in Austria. And it seemed like everybody who was doing that would sort of they lived alone um they got up they went to work in the morning they had that sort of fast-paced global job and then came home either to continue answering emails but you know it was it, it was a, a a very isolated way of life um so again i don't want to sort of glorify a past that's gone but you're absolutely astute in, in thinking about what our brains are built for and what we're continually asking them to do so one, I think, helpful framework for this is is one of evolutionary medicine, which thinks about the context in which our bodies evolved to be human and the fact that our social and cultural factors within the last 10,000 years um, have sped up so rapidly and changed so rapidly that basically our bodies are not necessarily built for today's world. Um, and I think one of the prime examples of this is, is a sedentary lifestyle. So why do we have obesity? Well, that's because our bodies were really programmed to um, find sugars and fats really delicious. So we eat it <laughs> and we keep eating it, right? Because in the environment in which humans became human, we didn't know if there was going to be a famine. We never knew where the next food source was coming from, right? So, um, so again, you know, our bodies are really programmed to store fat. Um, that becomes incredibly detrimental in a world where there's uh, where there's a richness of, of resources and, and a lack of need of, of sort of being on the go all the time, um, of engaging with exercise all the time that we used to have. So, you know, that's a really concrete example that I help, I think helps people see, um, that there's that, that mismatch. I think we can think about that as well in terms of, of our brains of being constantly switched on. You know, we, we know that we, we, our brains light up when, when we see a like uh, on social media, right? But what happens when we have that ad nauseum? Um, and particularly what, I, what my main concern is there is, is our, our, our younger age groups and adolescents uh, of, you know, how their brains are being primed to, again, constantly be switched on and constantly be in, in, in five places at one time, um, the five places being, you know, sort of virtual platforms, physical platforms, uh, where you are right in this moment, but knowing that you're also hyper-connected to a whole bunch of other things. So, um, you know, I, I think if I had a carte blanche of what I'd want to study, I would really want to think about how uh, technologies of speed are intersecting with uh, with the manifestation of, of mental health issues around the world. Uh, and again, not to sort of say we should all come to a screeching halt, but how do we adapt in the healthiest way? Because uh, the human ability to adapt is absolutely the best tool that we have in our toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, we have incredible variation uh, all around the world, and that came again through that ability to adapt. 
But I just think that we can take more control over that process. We don't have to be so blindsided by it. I think it leads into a, uh, the, one of the powerful points toward the end of your, your TED Talk is, is leveraging and using this the right way, but leveraging the extra time that we've been lucky enough to be given due to these technological advances. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a, in this entire conversation, and there's positives, there's negatives, there's misunderstandings, there's so much involved in so many layers, whether you're talking socially, culturally, policy-wise, there's so much to unpack. But I think at the end of the day, the overarching message that you had that was so powerful is is understanding the situation, but then realizing how you can utilize this this time that you've saved instead of filling it with with doing more things to speed things up even further. It's how do we leverage that? You know what? We can get our emails done. We we email now instead of having five minute phone calls. We shoot a couple emails out. We can get home earlier. So do we leverage that time with our family, or do we decide to do more emails? It's I think that's yeah. where you went with that in your talk. I think was was really powerful and something that's changed things for me is, okay, I've saved this free time, but don't fill it with doing more things. How has this affected your life and decisions you make and how you decide to lead your life from a, I guess, a speed point of view? Thanks, Ben. I I really appreciate that because I think that's one thing that, um, again, maybe gives people a bit more of an anchor. Um, And and I think that so many of us are are really craving, um, craving that anchor. I think um, gaining a footing in a particular place and at a particular time, being able to connect the dots um, to other sources of meaning in our life um, brings a lot of fulfillment. And I think there was so much about this project uh, and in talking with people and in seeing how across the board in this world where we disagree with ourselves and, and, and we're so... Um, we're so fragmented in so many ways that this was really one thing that you could get people to agree on. Um, is that just this this feeling of of being frenzied all the time forced me to really step back and take a taste of my own medicine. So, um, you know, that people throw around that term of being present, right? And it, it, it's almost said so often that it feels like it could be coming um, trite. And yet, it's it is such a powerful, radical way of, of living your life uh, is to, to actually stop and not be in five places at one time, um, but to listen to what someone's saying, to, to look into their eyes, to, to feel that empathy um, that, that is so terribly needed in, in today's world. So I think it's just forced me to, to be more cognizant of that. Um, every time I pick up my phone, why am I doing this? Why am I hopping on social media? Um, do I really want to check something? Do I, um, am I just bored? Am I just lonely? Should I be reading something instead? Should I just be sitting and, and looking outside and, and, and checking in with myself? Um, so I think it's, it's absolutely forced me to, to take a taste of my own medicine and, um, and, and have that element of practicing what you preach. Um, and it's also, I think, helped me to think about how culture and cultural values um, can can be such a powerful way of understanding uh, our collective experiences. So there's there's a lot of psychology, and I'm, I'm so excited for you to embark on on your your studies in, in psychology, and I'm dying to know more about that. Um, but psychology, the unit of analysis, is the individual, and in anthropology, the unit of analysis is the culture. 
it's it's a particular population. It's thinking about um, how how those sort of shared cultural values uh, come to shape our experiences. And that really makes me want to think about all the other ways that we can use that framework of, of culture in order to understand um, the really tricky and complex pheno- phenomena like mental health issues um, that are happening all around us. So um, I think that it's changed my life both as an individual and, and as a researcher. I think the unfortunate or interesting side is it, on the topic of mental health specifically, and, and I'm sure there are other issues in the world as well where speed may not be the answer. And I know we already touched on that, but just to, to really rationalize or, or bring people back down to earth that may be stuck in a, in a time where things are moving too fast. It's sometimes powerful to note that the answer may be in, in stillness in slowing down mm-hmm. is that's to me, that's the hardest thing to, to wrap your head around when you think you're going to get left behind and things need to get done. But um, I think it's an important conversation to have that, that just slowing down may be a fix to a lot of the issues that exist today. Yeah. And, and even if it's not slowing down, just, being able to take stock and say, what am I getting out of this? What's the purpose? Mm-hmm. So again, you know, I use that example in the talk of, because uh, I, I was always guilty of this, where I'd use a, uh, a, a transportation app to, um, to say, get me to a restaurant to meet up with my friends on the fastest route possible. So there I am racking my brain, taking all these side streets and, you know, you're frustrated by the time you even get there, but man, you save four minutes. So, you know, <laughs> Yahoo. Um, and, <laughs> And then, you know, the entire time I'm there, I'm, I'm watching my, my work phone kind of light up and, oh, there's all these emails to answer and things to address. And, and you're already thinking about that. I'm already in that other place, even though I'm not physically there, my brain is already in that other physical place. Um, and, and no one's checking it because everybody's doing it. So, you know, it sort of leads back to that cultural value. Um, so how do we sort of all we have to all kind of buy into that radical idea that we don't have to necessarily be so switched on all the time. And so I say this, there's, there's really nothing revolutionary about, about the talk. There's really nothing revolutionary about, about what I'm saying in terms of, of the, the social aspects of, of speed, the sort of the very personal aspect of speed. It isn't, and it's not a new phenomenon. It's something that we've been grappling with throughout all of modernity. Um, but I think, I think maybe what people are craving or maybe what, what resonates with people is that we haven't reminded ourselves in a long time that we do have permission to do that. And so if there's one thing that I would love for people to get out of this, I mean, you know, scary gene editing technologies aside and, and, and biased algorithms and all of that, um, to really, again, just sort of stop and pause and give yourself permission to uh, ask yourself what, what the purpose of going faster in that moment is. What, what sort of meaning are you gaining from a particular situation? What, what problem are you solving by going faster? Um, and, and oftentimes, it, it, it might actually be the answer, uh, or it might be speed plus something else, or it might be something else entirely. Um, and, and so I think, again, that's pretty radical. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. But I think that uh, as, a, as a community, as a global community, we can, we can get there. I was looking at some answers to the fast-paced world on, and maybe not the best resource, but on the internet. And, and so it coincides, one of the most powerful things I read, and, and similar to what you're saying, is to be 
consciously and rationally as much as you can in, in a fast-paced world with with your goals, being goal-oriented. Yeah. And, and you obviously not with every single decision you make, but trying to be without it being too overwhelming of, of what, like you said, when you pull your phone out, what's the goal here? Is it to waste time while I wait for people or is there something else? Or am I actually getting something done here that's going to benefit me that again will benefit me in the future? And, and I, I put it in some notes that I, that I keep as I listen to amazing people like yourself and try to learn as much as I can. And, and one of the biggest things I learned is, and that I tell myself as just a cognitive reminder is that there's, there's no more powerful place I could be than right here, right now yeah. for, to, to be the best I can right now, but then also to be the best I can in two weeks in a month is that if I am my best right now in this moment, that will be, there'll be nothing more powerful that could make me better uh, in the future. So that's, that's one thing I've, I've taken from, from hearing this conversation, but also other similar conversations is that 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 goal oriented point of view and how fast I'm doing something in rushing to do the next thing, or is there a moment here just being still that will actually make me better for the future? So um, Thanks, Ben. Yeah. I really appreciate that insight. And, and it's so, it's so encouraging. I mean, you said you're 26. I mean, that's, that's just amazing to have arrived at that at 26. Uh, you know, I, I told you at the start of this, but I, I really think the world of, of your platform and, and I'm excited for you. Oh, well, likewise, I'll, I'll be following along. I, and I mean, really, like I said, your ability to deliver the message, but then also all the facts and information you do have teaming those two things together is is incredible. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to have this conversation. I can't wait to share it. I know it's a, a pressing topic and, and something people need to hear. So um, yeah, I guess that that sums things up. I've got a list or a two pages full of notes here that I've that I've got. So I thank you for that. And yeah, like I said, I look forward to sharing and following along. Thanks a million, Ben. I really appreciate it. And um, please be sure to keep in touch. Will do. Will do. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. If you are enjoying these episodes, remember to leave a positive review wherever it is you listen to your podcast. And also, if you want to keep the conversation going further, discuss something that came up in the podcast, my email is always in the description of these episodes. Shoot me an email. I'd love to chat. And last but not least, if you are interested in a Heroic Toque Hat Shirt, Use the discount code HEROICMINDS, all capital letters, to get 15% off your order. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.